we at this time for our second message. to hide behind my computer. <coughs> we'll see how this works. I usually print my message out, but we'll see. Um, before I start, <coughs> we're going to be going through some of the kings of ancient Israel. Um, if you have an electronic device, you could go to a website that has some very nice charts. Uh, conformingtojesus.com conformingtojesus.com backslash chart dash map you go there. I was going to do handouts, but you have to understand me. I get so engrossed in these things. I'd be handing out six pages, you know. Uh, once you get to the website, click on EN for English. And then you'll see a directory of the kings on the left-hand side, and you'll be able to, or directory of subjects, and you can click on that, and it'll bring up the chart of the kings. <coughs> the current workings of God often go unrecognized, and it's very difficult to discern currently both the efforts of God and the efforts of the dark side. It's easier to see them historically through the scriptures, verified some kind, sometimes by uh, secular history. We have prophecies for the future, <coughs> but the current is pretty hard to identify. I got interested in looking at the kings and seeing some of the things that God did back during the days of ancient Israel because of one particular scripture, which I'll highlight when we get down to it. But I want to begin with, obviously, the man who was the first king, Saul. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, ancient Israel came, the elders of ancient Israel came and gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and said, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And I actually missed what they asked for, and I'll explain that here as we go along. The word king here is 4428, meaning king or royalty. And down in 1 Samuel 8.18, God gives him a warning, and he says, and when will you cry out in that day because of your king, your king who you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. And it just struck me after a while. Why did the Lord say this? Because they did not ask to choose a king. They asked Samuel to make them a king. And God says, the king that you have chosen for yourself. There was a bit of a disconnect. And that's what got me started in this research that really became rather lengthy and involved. <coughs> so I got... Uh, a list of all the kings, and oh, by the way, I didn't know this actually, or I had forgotten that there was a queen, a queen in Judah. But Judah was fairly consistent. Uh, as we know, the son or the daughter follows into the position of rulership when the ruling king or queen passes away. And that's pretty much all of what Judah did. But Israel 
was totally different. Israel had eight turnovers in rebellions. The first king, of course, was Saul. And it's interesting here again, because when you go to 1 Samuel 11, 15, it says, and all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they offered sacrifices of peace offering before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And on the morrow, there was a, a, a battle, and Saul became a war hero. He broke the people up into three companies, and he attacked the Amorites. And I had a, I had a whole section on the Amorites, but Matthew Steele did a pretty good job on that, so I extracted that and about Basra. But we are familiar with uh, war heroes becoming presidents or political leaders. We have plenty of examples in our own history. But before the people selected Saul, the Lord selected him in Samuel 9, 15 through 17. The Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man out of the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. Notice, he did not say, I anoint Saul king. He says, I anointed, call Saul captain. And there's a different word here. The Strong's number is 5057, and it means governor, ruler, prince, or leader. And that's when the bell came on for me. He's not talking about the individual. He's talking about the position, the official state position of king, not the individual man. And we'll go through this further and we'll see how that works out. After Saul was anointed, he was then publicly announced by Samuel, 1 Samuel 10, 20 through 24. When Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And he goes down through this. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time. Jump down to verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? that there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. And they say that to this day, don't they? But not all of the people approved. And we continue in Sam, 1 Samuel 10, 26 and 27. We see that the children of Baal, Baal, Baal said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present. But he held his peace. <coughs> so what happened was, the Lord selected Saul, made a public announcement. Through circumstances, Saul became a war hero, and then the people in their own minds accepted him and made him king. You see how he worked behind the scenes to make it acceptable to the people? But he did warn the people. Because he says, Now therefore, behold the king whom you have chosen the office of king. 
whom you have desired, the Lord has set a king over you. He'll fill that position. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and the king also that reigns over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So the people had their first king, and they were warned about the future. And it passed when Saul passed away. His son Isbosheth took over. And now here we see some ancient patriots get themselves into trouble. further than I wanted to be. Let's, let's go to David's example first, then we'll come back to Isbosheth. When David had been anointed king in 1 Samuel 24, 4-11, through 11, he was admonished by his own men to go and kill Saul. The men of David said unto him, verse Behold, the day of, the, of which the Lord said unto you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that thou mayest do to him as you see fit. David rose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. But then later, in verse 5, David's heart smote him because he had done this. And David went back to Saul from a distance, in verse 9, and said, Wherefore hear you the men, men's words, saying, Behold, David seeks your hurt. Sound like the news agencies of today? What do you believe? Here the men are telling Saul, the news reporters of the day are telling Saul, Dave is out to kill you. David takes this opportunity to prove to Saul that they're wrong. Continuing in verse 10, see how the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me to kill you but my eye has spared you. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. There's a lesson in there for us too. And he goes on, he says, the Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of you, but my hand shall not be upon you. Now let's get to the slaying of Isbosheth. Notice David did not raise his hand against Saul so he could become king. But some of his men thought that he should. And so in the second Samuel chapter four, verses five through eight, we find two of those men went, snuck up into the house, and in verse six, they smote him under the fifth rib. And they and they escaped out of the house. And then in verse seven, they beheaded him and took his head and went through the plain all night and they brought the head of Isbosheth unto David in Hebron, thinking that the king would honor them. But that was not David's response. David in 2 Samuel 4 verse 11 says, How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his own bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand? 
and take you away from this earth. And David commanded his young men, and they slew him. Patriots acting in the wrong way. We see this repeated again in early Judah. We'll get there in a little bit here. But first, at this point, the rulership in ancient Israel split. And the interesting part about it is most people didn't know it. 1 Kings 11, 31, 32. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of your hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I was speaking to someone here at the feast uh, two days ago or whatever, and I said that Jeroboam was anointed. Uh, was anointed. He was not. Starting with the split in the rulership between Israel and Judah, the kings were no longer anointed. But apparently Solomon knew that Jeroboam had been selected to rule over ten tribes because in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 40, Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So while Solomon was, alive, was yet alive, the Lord determined to split the kingdom and Solomon knew about it. But his son, Rehoboam, didn't know about it. And that's why when we get to 1 Kings 12, we see verse 1, Rehoboam went to Sechem, for all of Israel were come to Sechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it. Verse 3, they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spoke unto Jeroboam. And it was interesting here what happens because I, I, when you first read this, I personally find it to be repulsive because Rehoboam, asking counsel of his counselors, went to the old men, the wise men, then he went and he got advice from them, and then he went to the young men. And the young men told him, be harder on these people. Whip them harder. Get more work out of them. Add to their yoke. And he listened to him. He didn't listen to the old man. But all of this was planned out by the Lord. But Rehoboam didn't know it yet. And so after the split, Rehoboam and Israel said, we don't want that harsh whip beating on us. To your tents, Israel, we'll leave. And so they left. And Rehoboam was left with his couple of kingdoms, a couple of tribes. But Rehoboam came to Jerusalem and he assembled, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 men chosen who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. After all, he was the rightful heir, wasn't he? And the Lord said, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house for this thing is from me. And so they, ob they obeyed that, abided by it. 
kingdom of Israel had eight overthrows. We're going to look at just a couple more. I have so much information here. This, this um, <clears throat> I'm trying to kind of ferret it out as I go along. Zimri and Basha. <clears throat> Basha was a king. He overthrew someone of his own accord. His son then came in and ruled over, over Israel after him. Zimri didn't like Elah, the son of Basha. And neither did the prophet of God who came and spoke against him in 1 Kings 16, 1 through 4. And then the Lord, word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Han... I'm not good on their language, right? Hanani against Basha, saying, For as much as I exalted thee out of the dust and made you prince over my people Israel, and thou hast walked in the way of Jeroboam, has made my people Israel to sin, to provoke me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will take away the posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house, and I will make the house like the house of Jeroboam. Him that dies of Basha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dies of his in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Yes, he is saying he's going to destroy the friends, his relatives. Zimrah heard the words of Jehu and decided he was the man to make it happen. And in 1 Kings 16, verse 10, Zimri went in and smote him and killed him. Verse 12, Thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Basha according to the word of God, which he spake against Basha by Jehu the prophet. But as in a question here, Zimri fulfilled the words of the prophet, but he didn't do what David did, recognizing that authority even though the man was not anointed. He decided he would make himself the ins instrument by which those words would be fulfilled. There's an interesting turn of events here. 1 Kings 16, 15 through 20. Let's go down to 16, verse 16. Now the people who were encamped heard it. Zimri had conspired and also had killed the king. So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Verse 18. And as it happened, when Zimri saw the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. And in 1 Kings 16.20 it says, Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his treason that he wrought, are they not written in the book of Chronicles? It's called treason. So his act, by the way, he reigned only seven days as the king of Israel. So although he acted, he apparently acted on his own behalf without any direction from God. He acted because he heard the words prophet and he made himself the instrument by which it would happen. Continuing in 1 Kings verse, chapter 16, verse 22, but the people who, because there was a split there, you had Omri on one side, some of the people followed, the other half of the people followed another man. 
Tibni. But the people who followed Omri prevailed, and Timri died, and Omri reigned. Omri was the only king that was selected by the people. He was the only one. That's why I come to the conclusion back in 1 Samuel 8.18 when he says king, he's not talking about men, he's talking about the position of king. Because it placed a man between God and Israel. And that situation exists today in their government and many governments around the world. We don't have the term chancellor, prime ministers, or presidents, or premier. He spoke to them in terms that they understood. But we could apply that to ourselves today too. But the church is different. The church is different because we have direct access to our God. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. And much of this was never recognized what went on here was never recognized by the people. And here is a really, really big one, a really, really big event here. Ahab, Omri's son. First Kings 22, verses 1 through 6. For three years there had been no war between Syria and Israel. And in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah came down to the king of Israel and the king of Israel said to his servants, Ramoth and Gilead is ours. We should take it out of the hand of Syria. And both kings kind of agreed and make a long story short here because I want to save some time rather than going through all the scriptures. First Kings 22, verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? besides that we might inquire of, because Ahab had already inquired of his 400 prophets, and they said, yes, go out, victory, victory is yours. He didn't want to bring up the prophet of the Lord. He says to Jehoshaphat, well, you know, I, I really don't like the prophet of the Lord. He always speaks badly about me. Long story short, the, the prophet comes in, and he says the same thing the false prophets say. And, and, and the king Ahab says, what are you lying for? <laughs> you know, what are you lying for? And he, he just accused the guy of always talking bad about him. So he doesn't talk bad about him. He talks good about him. And he accuses him of lying. So then the, then the prophet tells the truth. You're going to die on the battlefield. He didn't like that either. Send that man off to prison. <clears throat> you know, it, it's just utterly amazing. Because, let's see if I can get down to where I want to be here. Because what happens, they were totally unaware of what was going on behind the scenes. First King 22, 20 through 22, behind the scenes. And the Lord said, He's in an executive meeting, executive council here. Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go out and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. So they're debating, how are we going to get Ahab to go out there and get killed? 
This is God. This is an executive council on, in, within the throne of God, in his chambers. Then there came forth the spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. And the Lord said, how? He said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and prevail. Go forth and do so. The Lord sent forth a lying spirit. You hear any lying spirits in the news today? Where are they coming from? Are they coming from the dark side? Or are they coming from the Lord? And what's the end game? Confusing, isn't it? It is for me anyway. I'm going to quote something here just for the sake of rhetoric because there's a lot of political rhetoric out there and some of it is quite agitating. I mean, in fact, I think they're trying to inflame and incite. Recently, someone said, Trump is a corrupt, boisterous loudmouth that should be impeached. How's that strike you? Did that flip your belly? Does that make you mad or glad? How do we feel when somebody says the same thing about Jesus? And why do you have an emotional reaction about things going on politically that you don't have when somebody says something about Jesus? Do we love God the Father and his Son, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, your King, and back it up with his teachings? Or do we selectively choose teachings that we approve of ourselves and throw away those things that we disapprove? You know who God is, don't you? You know who Jesus is, don't we? I think it was Pastor Andrews that went through this yesterday in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 9. And the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And in verse 9, the devil says to Jesus, and all these will I give you if you fall down and worship me. The devil rules this world. He says so right here. He admits it to Jesus. And he continues to do so out in Revelation 12, verse 9, and that great day, great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. You know, Satan's not stupid. When he went to see Eve when he was in the garden, it wasn't just a Sunday afternoon walk in the park or walk through the garden. He enticed her to take specifically of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Why did he say take of the knowledge of good and evil? Because man in his own pride and arrogance thinks he's pretty smart. And, he, and Satan presents himself as an angel of light. And thereby he can deceive, manipulate, and control. There are satanic operations going on in this world and they can sometimes and many times present themselves as an angel of light. I have no political affiliation with any organization. I believe I'm a citizen in the kingdom of God and an ambassador for Jesus Christ who is my ruling king. 
The statement that I made about President Trump, I, did, I made that to elicit emotional responses from people. But I believe clearly um, in what happened with Peter and the other apostles in the book of Acts. <coughs> There's an incident there where Peter and the other apostles were teaching. And, of course, the local residents who were the Pharisees and Sadducees, I'm not sure which it was, Pharisees, I guess it was, yeah, stood up, and they didn't like it. And they were seeking to kill him. Acts 5.33, and when they heard that, they were cut to the heart, and instead of repenting, Kill those people that are bad-mouthing us. And they took counsel to slay them. Acts 5, 34 through 37. Then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people and commanded them to put forth the apostles a little place and said to them, You men of Israel, take heed of yourselves what you intend to do touching these men. For before these days rose up, and he goes through a number of examples where there were rebellions and, and leaders of the people, and he finishes his line with them, with this, with this statement, Acts 5.39. But if what, and I'm going to interject, what the, the apostles are teaching and teaching, if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happy, happily you will be found even to fight against God. Paul says to the Corinthians, 4 verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. There are judgments that we make that belong at the time when the Lord returns. And we probably all slap our lids sometimes maybe condemning people that we shouldn't condemn, maybe presidents, maybe political leaders, maybe our neighbor. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. There you go. Unrecognized influence. The hidden things of darkness that will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. In James 4.4, 4, James continues, and he says, again, a, a significant statement here. You adulterers and adulteresses. And he's not speaking physically. He's speaking spiritually. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enemy with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You know, you embrace pol politics of this world. You can be getting on the wrong side of the fence. We're going to see what happened with Daniel in a little bit here. But first I want to finish up with the, with the kings of Israel. In Jeremiah, after, after Ahab, <coughs> there were 
five more overthrows done by men all on their own accord except one and that was Jehu and not the prophet this was the man who was king and he was told by God he and his sons would rule over Israel for four generations and they did <clears throat> but after that yes, he was everybody was pretty much on their own some were assassinated four of them were assassinated and one died in prison until the kingdom was overthrown by the Assyrians in 722 and subsequently um, Judah in 606. And in Jeremiah 3, verse 8, we see that the Lord gave Israel a writ of divorcement. And he had a new bride to be coming along. So we get some examples on how he worked behind the scenes. And the point that I'm trying to make is we cannot clearly see that. And it's complex. And we best be careful where we place our allegiances and what we say and what we do. In the teachings of Jesus, and I'm going to do these as bullet points. I'm not going to turn to a lot of these scriptures. I'm just going to go down through and get the essential thought. Matthew 10:16. Jesus speaking, be as harmless as doves, Luke 3.14. And to the soldiers likewise demanded of him, Jesus, saying, what shall we do? Soldiers are asking him, what shall they do? You know what he said to them? Do no violence to any man. Wait a minute, I'm a soldier. That's what I'm hired to do. I'm supposed to fight for the country. He says, don't do any violence. That means you have to disobey your commanding officer, go AWOL, or suffer the consequences. Or you can be like one Jewish guy did in the German war. When he took his rifle out to shoot, he always shot high. And when there was a special operation, he was missing somehow. <laughs> so he played his own little dodge game. If you're successful at doing that. <clears throat> Do violence to no man. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men. Matthew 5, 24, love your enemies. Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. Romans 12, 14, bless them that persecute you. Mm, that's a tough one, isn't it? But when they do that, it's later on going to come back as a witness against them sometimes, and they will be converted because of it. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I exhort you, therefore, first of all, supplication, prayers, and intercession, and give thanks giving of thanks to be made for all men, kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Lord, who will have all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's easier to do the work when you have peace and quiet, and you don't have to run from house to house, city to city, being chased around with people trying to kill you like the Apostle Paul had to do. Matthew 5.39, resist not evil, but whoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek. 2 Timothy 2.4, no man that warreth entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier, a soldier of Jesus. What, are the, what constitutes entanglement with the affairs of this life? That's something you have to figure out. If you go by the 
popularity what's in the news all the time, one entanglement is politics. Ephesians 6.12, I think Pastor Andrews referenced this one too yesterday. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And here's where we fight, against principalities. We don't fight flesh and blood. You're not in the physical army. But against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places, using not the sword of steel, but a sword of the word. The disciples, when they spoke amongst themselves after Jesus had been killed, Luke 24, verse 21, but we trusted that he had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done, and they had heard that he wasn't in the sepulchre. Acts 1, 6, when they saw him, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And of course they were told that it's not for them to know the time. That gets really interesting. Because if you understand the seven, the seven punishments and the 25, 20 years that were up in 1787, establishing this country, and then in 1917 or thereabouts, establishing Israel by the Balfour document, To a certain degree, they were restored. Israel was restored as a nation. I mean, the Jewish nation. But the lost tribes, of course, the flag has 13 stars and 13 stripes on it. And then was the birth of the church at Pentecost, followed by the Jews in being invaded by the Romans. There were four responses that the Jews gave of the Roman invasion. Become a collaborator. Hey, go with the wind. The wind's blowing from Rome. They've got the power and the might. You snuggle up with them for a while. Or you can become a zealot. And you can fight. And they ended up retreating to Masada and committed suicide. You can be a holy witness and offer a sacrifice of yourself, or you can flee. There's a time coming when Israel will be restored and it will be restored in the kingdom of God with a righteous government and there will be no more sins. It's described in Jeremiah 31.1. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, continuing uh, verses 10 and 11. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, he that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. With Pentecost, we had 
the birthday and the birth of the church. The next day in God's plan is in reality, I'm talking about the reality of the meaning of the days is the day of trumpets. Two of the memorials of the blowing of trumpets is gathering the congregation, i.e. a resurrection, gathering the saints, and an alarm for war, Armageddon. We can read a little bit about Armageddon as it occurs in Judah. Zechariah 12, verses 5 through 9. And the governors of Judah shall say in their hearts, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheet. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And in Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnetize themselves against Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and as the house of David shall be as God as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come, shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. And it's followed directly by atonement. Zechariah 12, verses 10 and 11. And I will pour out upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace, the spirit of supplication. And they shall look on me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. They will finally recognize Jesus for who he is and they will accept him. And they truly will be repentant and sorrowful of heart. They'll finally get it. There's a cliche, it's not scriptural, but nonetheless, when I heard it, I thought it was accurate, and I don't remember who said it to who. But he said, do you love the gift greater than you love the gift giver? I was surprised that the person who received that received it peaceably. I was half expecting a bit of a brawl to come about, but it didn't. But it raises the question, do we love the national gift? The blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh have been rolled out. The blessing of Abraham has been rolled out physically, spiritually, in part. Do we love them better, more, than we love Jesus? Ancient Israel never repented. They followed the works of their king. They had a good king. They did what the king said to do. The king said to worship God. They worship God. If the king said worship Balaam and he made idols to Balaam, probably under the influence of Satan. We'll get to that in a minute. But not all. For 7,000, it says in Isaiah, bowed not to Baal, but mostly they followed the lead of the king without any regard to the instructions given by God. 
<coughs> and most of the kings, but not all, were, quote, evil in scriptural terms. The pilgrims that came to this country were fleeing religious persecution following the instructions of Jesus. And the result was a new country founded on godly values and principles, just like ancient Israel. But he doesn't force anybody to maintain that. And the leaders can go to the direction that they want to go. And Satan has his own leaders. He has his own spiritual force. We see that when Daniel prayed in Daniel 10, 13. This is what he says. He's finishing up here in his prayer. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. This is the angel speaking to Daniel in Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been alone there with the kings of Persia. The intimation, the intimation is clear that the angels are sent out on behalf of the heirs of salvation. And so the demons are concerned on behalf of the world system, and they also are sent out. Here we get visibility that there is an angel from the dark side associated with the national government of Persia. And if they're in Persia, make no mistake, they're in Washington, D.C. also. And perhaps a deep state government. We live in fearful times. We're Christians. We're citizens in the kingdom of God. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Kings and priests before, God, before Jesus. no place in a worldly government. For Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world as the worldly governments are. In my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here, from this earth. In Ephesians 6.12, he says, go back and read that again. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. And in the end, Revelation 13, 7 and 8, speaking of Satan, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. And with him already having his angel, angelic beings in place, influencing national leaders around the world. That's not hard to imagine. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in, written in the book of life. The, the sla lamb slain from the foundations of the world. The, this power over the nations will be facilitated by Satan's angelic force and influence. Continuing in Revelation 1, 5, and 6. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us 
kings and priests unto God his Father to be glory and dominion. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Did you catch it? Did you catch what was just said there? Or did you let it go right over your head? Wake up. It doesn't say you will be kings and priests. It says you have been made kings and priests. You already are kings and priests. Just like Jesus. We're waiting for the assignment when the God the Father Father says to Jesus, now's the time. Go do it. You are Satan's replacement. You will replace him. You will replace all of his associates. Satan hates you. His associates hate you for that reason. The current world governments are not part of Jesus' organization. They're not part of the government of God. They're not part of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. They will replace, be replaced or brought into the fold, and we have a vital part in that mission. We need to be sure where we stand and what direction we take, especially as this thing gets more and more cloudy and unstable. Because what we all want is described in Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, and you will be reigning with him there forever and ever. 